0: Welcome, everyone. Can everyone hear me? Uh, Welcome. My name is Janie Stevens. I am one of the residents uh, in the women's equipping team here at Watermark, and you are here at the breakout session, Image Bearers, a Biblical View of Women. So thank you all for taking time on your Saturday morning to... um, come and learn about what it means to uh, be a woman according to God and according to the Bible. So actually, before we jump in, I might uh, say a prayer, and then I'll introduce everyone who's going to be up here today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for um, this day, Lord, that we can learn about you, Lord. I thank you that you have designed um, each one of us as women and men, Lord, for a specific purpose, Lord to showcase your glory. We thank you that you have, um, given us the privilege to represent you in the world and you've, uh, instinctually done that in how you've created us, Lord. So I pray that you would teach us today as we dive into your word. Um, thank you for the truth of your word and that, um, we can fully rely upon your word and know what that, um, means for us as we go about in our daily lives. So Lord, um, I just pray that you'd be with us. Bless this time together. Um, And I just ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Alrighty, so as I said, my name is Janie Stevens. Along with me today are three other girls who are residents here at Watermark. Uh, We've got Natalie Wall, uh, Ellie Troyer, and Katie Baumgart. So we're all uh, four, going to be kind of jumping in at different points in time during the day to kind of discuss different aspects of womanhood. And the reason why we chose this topic is because, as you all, I'm sure, know, I mean, we are... Um, bombarded by ors- all sorts of crazy messages throughout the world um, trying to define what womanhood is wouldn't you say? I-, I-, I want to ask y'all, I want to open it up to y'all at the very first and say how would you say that the world defines womanhood? If you are brave enough to uh, share what-, what would you say on a daily basis just the, the world uh, says womanhood is all about? The sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yes, sexuality. Yeah. What else?
1: We're not okay
0: the way we are. Right, yeah, we're not okay the way we are. Mm-hmm. What caretakers. else? What? We're caretakers. Caretakers, uh huh, yeah. What else? Weak. Mm-hmm. Weak, yeah. Less Any- intelligent. Less intelligent, mm-hmm. yeah. That is true. Yeah, there's all these ideas are floating around in the world and bombarding us. I yeah, I came up with a lot of those type of things: beauty, sexuality. I read one article where the writer said, "I believe being a woman is a state of mind and a commitment to social action," uh, whatever that means. I don't. I don't even know. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, we're constantly being bombarded by these messages all claiming to have the authoritative word on what womanhood is. But if, if we truly want to define womanhood, we need to consult uh, the one who created it, and that is God, the creator. And so that's what we're going to be doing today, diving into the Bible, do- diving into God's word to see what is a biblical view of womanhood. So why did God go to all the trouble to design man to be male and female? What were his original intentions uh, in this design before sin came into the world? And then, then what does that mean for us who are now living in a fallen, sinful world? Does that still apply? So that's what we're going to be exploring today, and we're going to be exploring this topic using a biblical worldview model. And so what do I mean by that? That means we're going to be analyzing womanhood in all its facets using the four main categories uh, that make up a biblical worldview, which are creation, which asks and answers the question, who are we and why are we here? Fall, which asks and answers the question, how do we get into this mess? redemption, which asks and answers the question, what is the solution? And then restoration, which asks and answers the question, where are we going from here? So these are the four categories that make up and define a biblical worldview. And so how we've divided up our time. We've divided it up into four 30-minute blocks of time, and each one of us is going to discuss one of those four categories of the biblical worldview, starting with creation. I'm going to do creation. And so then we're going to trace um, womanhood as it evolves, for lack of a better word, uh, throughout the biblical worldview stages. And what that means for us is women who have been redeemed by Christ but are now living in a fallen world. So, all right, so that's what we're doing. So we're going to dive into the creation category right now of our biblical worldview. And so the logical place to start, one would assume, would be the creation account. And so that's exactly where we are going to start, Genesis 1 and 2. So Genesis 1, if you don't know, is, is well, obviously, is where it all begins. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And the whole chapter really is a zoomed-out view on creation. It's more of a macro-level Um, view of creation, showing how God created all of the heavens and the earth. And so it shows how creation was a six-day process. The first five days, God created all the material world, land, sea, sky, light, animals, birds, fish, all the above. And God declared all those to be good. And so then Um, it wasn't until the sixth and final day that God created man as male and female. And then only after the sixth day did God declare his creation to be very good. So from this first chapter in the Bible, man as male and female is highlighted to be the pinnacle and climax of God's creation. Right from the very get-go, we understand that. So in Genesis 1, the creation account of man is found in verses 26 through 28. So I'm going to read it. So it says, if you have your Bibles, open it up to to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Um, Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so if you don't have your Bible right in front of you, it would be hard to know this, but the main emphasis of these three verses is actually the middle verse, verse 27. Because verse 26 and 28, they're relatively similar verses and they're both in the style of poetic prose if you want to get technical, Uh, but verse 27 is pure poetry. So especially in the Hebrew, it's, um, so in the original language, it would be highlighted and emphasized. So again, what does verse 27 say? If it's the one that's emphasized, we better know it. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right from the very beginning, we can pull out a foundational principle for our biblical worldview of women. Man is created in the image of God as male and female. Man is created in the image of God as male and female, meaning that man is defined as male and female, and male and female are created in the image of God. So why is this significant? It's significant because if male and female are both created in the image of God, that means male and female share equality of personhood, equality of dignity, importance, mutual respect, and unified destiny. We are created equal, male and female. So that's our first and foundational principle or truth within our biblical worldview of womanhood. And that might seem a bit obvious, uh, but it's extremely foundational and it's needed. In fact, many of the things I'm going to be pointing out today uh, may at first glance seem obvious and simplistic, but they're actually very profound because God is trying to tell us something uh, in his original intention. So every little detail matters, and I'm going to be pointing out why as we go along. So the next place that we're going, we're going to go to Genesis 2. So, Whereas Genesis 1, we said, is a zoomed out macro level view of creation, Genesis 2, now on the other hand, is a zoomed in depiction of creation, specifically focusing in on the creation of man on the sixth day. So we, we learn uh, even more details regarding the creation of man from this Genesis 2 creation account. So let me read it. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25 in Genesis 2, and I'm going I'm to read it all because it's all important. So the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, so the first thing that we see in this passage is that Adam was created first. So another obvious detail, but yet is significant. Why is it significant? The fact that Adam was created first tells us something about um, the leadership responsibility that God does intend for the man to have within the home and within the marriage. Because here with Adam and Eve, we are um, talking about a husband and wife scenario. So the fact that Adam was created first tells us that man does play a unique leadership role within the work of establishing order for human flourishing. He has a certain headship within the home. Also, though, in verse 18, the Lord quickly determines that this scenario of Adam being alone as the first created human is not good. This is, this is the first time in the creation account that God declares something to be not good. Be- before that, um, everything created had been declared either good or very good. So, then to remedy the not-goodness of man being alone, God says he will make a helper suitable for him. And so that's the second thing that we learn from this passage. It's the purpose for which the woman was created. Eve was created as a helper suitable for Adam. So, now, what do you think of when you hear the word helper? Helper. Uh, because there is kind of some debate around this word helper and help. And the debate is if the woman was created as a helper to the man, does that mean that the woman is or plays a subordinate role to the man in the realm of human flourishing? And the answer is a resounding no, with uh, several proof texts to support. So first off, woman as helper, suitable for man, does not make woman subordinate to man because of the truth that we just learned in Genesis 1.27. That man, humanity, is created in the image of God as male and female, and therefore one is not subordinate to the other. We said they are equal in personhood, dignity, importance. So see, these, these simple truths matter. God is laying a foundation and a framework, and that he's building upon what he's already established. So in addition, if you need even more proof, the word helper here, the Hebrew word that is tra- translated helper, is the word ezer. And throughout scripture, this word, ezer, is most often used to describe God as the helper of man, of humanity. In Psalm thirty-three twenty, 20, this word, ezer, is used. The verse is, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our helper and our shield. Also in Psalm 54, 4, surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. And then finally, Moses, who is the human author of the book of of Genesis, he named one of his sons, Eliezer, spelled E-L-I-E-Z-E-R. This is Exodus 18.4. Eliezer translates to, God is my helper. So if this word is used throughout scripture to describe God and his actions toward man, it cannot be a demeaning term, and it cannot mean subordination because God is in no way subordinate to man. In fact, the, the fact that God is called helper throughout Scripture actually brings honor to the position of helper. So that's pretty amazing. So with all that in mind, what exactly does this term helper mean in regards to the fact that the woman is made to be a helper of man? Well, I'll give you a scenario. For instance, um, if I were given the task or the responsibility to move all these tables out into the hall, I obviously would not be able to do it by myself, so I um, might say to my friend, Ellie, I might say, Ellie, hey, can you help me move these tables out into the hall? Well, okay, so a helper, we would say, I am the one with the primary responsibility that I need a helper along with me. So I've asked Ellie to come alongside and help me. It's still my primary responsibility. I'm the one who has been tasked with the assignment to move all the tables, but I can't do it by myself. So I need a helper. So I've asked Ellie to come alongside me. Obviously, Ellie is not inferior to me. Uh, It's just that I originally had been tasked with the primary responsibility to move these tables, and so she is helping me. The same is true uh, with men and women. Men have been tasked with the primary responsibility, not the only responsibility, but the primary responsibility of leading the family unit, but he can't do it alone. He needs a helper, and not just any helper. He needs a helper suitable for him. Not a helper exactly like him, but a helper suitable for him. Meaning that he and his helper fit together. They complement one another. So that the weaknesses of the man call forth and highlight the strengths of the woman. And likewise, the weaknesses of the woman call forth and highlight the strengths of the man. They complement one another. And indeed, when Adam first saw Eve and named her, which again does highlight uh, his headship over his wife, um, but when he named her, he didn't name her in a condescending way. He exclaimed with excitement. We don't have recorded for us Adam's first words or reactions regarding God's creation of the birds or the animals or the the fish, but we do know Adam's first words and reactions regarding God's creation of the woman, and it's quite telling. Verse 23 in chapter 2 in the ESV, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the name that he gives her, it mirrors his own name. So, so this is really an expression of the compassionate headship of an equal. One commentary uh, paraphrased Adam's reaction as saying, She is worthy of being called by the same name as myself. So, what is all what, what is all this getting at? What we can we can wrap all this up into one tight principle? We can say that man and woman have distinct yet complementary roles and responsibilities. Man and woman have been designed by God to have distinct yet complementary roles and responsibilities. So, yes, men and women are equal, but they are also distinct and different and have been made to complement one another or to fit together for the good of the family, for the good of human flourishing, but also for another reason. God made man, male and female, to have distinct yet complementary roles and responsibilities that they might more fully reflect complementary truths about Jesus truths about Jesus. That is the ultimate, ultimate purpose. In particular, truths regarding Jesus's relationship to his bride, the church. And so we can make this truth even more astounding. We can say that man, as male and female, displays the glory of Jesus Christ in dying for his bride, the church man is male and female, displays the glory of Jesus Christ in dying for his bride, the church. This is the highest expression of the glory of Christ, the fact that he died to make a rebellious people his everlasting and supremely happy bride. Men as the husband and headship role of the family were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church in ways that women cannot. Christ is the head of the church. Likewise, women, as wife and helper to the husband, were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ in ways that men cannot. The church is the bride of Christ. So in other words, womanhood is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of his son in ways that would otherwise not be displayed if there were no womanhood. And so that's really amazing. If there were only generic persons of, and not male and female, the glory of Christ would be diminished in the world. So from the creation of the world, God has always had this intention. Manhood and womanhood were not an afterthought of God. They weren't just a convenient analogy that God stumbled upon uh, as he was trying to describe Christ's relationship with the church. No, this was always God's original intention and design. Revelation 13.8 refers to Jesus as the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. This is God's plan A. This is no surprise. God designed men and women to display the glory of Christ in dying for the church. This is Ephesians 5. Specifically, Ephesians 5, 21 through 32. And I'm going to read it. If you have your Bibles, um, turn with me there. So starting in verse 21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice he starts with saying, everyone, submit to everyone. Uh, Many people start with the next verse, which says wives submit to husbands. But he first starts out, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And then Paul goes on to quote Genesis 2.24, our main passage from today. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So it's not about... Womanhood versus manhood. It's not about us being woman women just for the sake of being women. It's about displaying the fullness of the glory of God's Son, Jesus Christ, as He died that He might have His bride. Now, all that uh, being said, I cannot leave here without uh, speaking for a moment to all of my single friends out there. Uh, I am single. And I know that a lot of this is leaning heavily upon uh, the husband and wife relationship, and that's because it does. But what does God have to say regarding singleness and single women? How does singleness fit into the grand scheme of God's design? Does singleness fit into the grand scheme of God's design? And the answer is a resounding yes, another resounding answer for at least two reasons. And there are more, but I'm just going to hone in on two for the sake of time. All right. The first reason, a life of Christ-exalting singleness bears witness that the family of God grows not by physical procreation, but by spiritual regeneration through faith in Christ. I know that's a long statement, A life of Christ-exalting singleness bears witness that the family of God grows not ultimately by physical procreation, but by spiritual regeneration through faith in Christ. So what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the blessing was children. A person was considered blessed if they had many children, and that's because God was primarily building his covenant people within one people group, the Jewish people. But now, God's covenant people are the church, Jews and Gentiles from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So now the blessing is disciples. Go and make disciples, Jesus commanded us. And so who better to go and make disciples than single women who potentially have more time and opportunity to invest in others for the sake of Christ and as a result will find it to be a great blessing in their lives. I can personally attest to that. All right, so number two, the second way that singleness fits into God's design is a life of Christ-exalting singleness bears witness that marriage is temporary and will eventually give way to the relationship to which it is always pointed all along, and that is Christ to his church. Marriage is temporary and will eventually give way to the relationship to which it is pointed all along, and that is Christ to his church. Marriage is a type, uh, what the Bible calls a type, or a picture illustrating for us Christ relationship to the church. So much like the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with that, all of those were types of Christ illustrating for the Jewish people what Christ would eventually come to do and fulfill. But because Christ has now come, we no longer need the tabernacle and the priesthood and the daily sacrifices. So likewise, marriage will not exist beyond this life. Therefore, single women who are content to walk with Christ as their husband right now are a beautiful witness to the fact that in the end, Christ will be the only husband in the universe. And single women alone have the privilege of illustrating that truth by the lives that they live. So it's, it's a great honor actually. So wrapping up, we can say without a doubt that true womanhood was designed by God to flourish in both marriage and singleness for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's our final principle uh, for this morning. True womanhood was designed by God to flourish in both marriage and singleness for the glory of Jesus Christ. So these are some uh, lofty and glorious intentions that God has had and has uh, for womanhood. But as we all know, we don't necessarily see these play out on a daily basis. Something has gone terribly wrong and that something is the fall. And so now Natalie, a fellow resident, is going to come up and tell us how the fall has affected our perception of womanhood as well as our lives as women as well. So thank you all.
2: How are you guys? Um, Is everybody doing good? Do you guys need a five-minute break, or do you want to keep going? Keep going? Okay, I like it. Okay. I'm Natalie Wall. I'm a resident here, actually in Fort Worth, Uh, hey, Uh, for the Young Adults Program. So uh, this experience has been life-changing, and just getting to learn more of God's beauty and sovereignty um, has really changed my life, so... It's been a pleasure and uh, an honor to be here and teach with you guys. So I wanted to start out with this story um, of myself when I was young. And so I am talking about the fall and specifically, hey, what are the lies that we believe that the world says about women? So when I was a kid, I don't know about you guys, but I loved sports. Sports was my thing. Anything I could do, I played softball, basketball, soccer. All of it, and soon, once I started playing that as a kid, I began to compare myself, and at a young age, looked at these other players of mine and was telling myself, "Hey, I'm not as skinny as them. I might not be as fast as them," um, and just had that spiral um, effect on myself of of comparing and. What is crazy is I was playing two to three sports at a time, but yet didn't think that I was healthy or I was fit enough because I was looking at other girls thinking that, um, that I was fatter than them. And uh, so from there, I began to have self-destructive thoughts in my image and who I was and, and worrying about my shape and... Um, trying to work harder so I could uh, look as good as them. And y'all, these thoughts were at 12 years old when I was little. I mean, at an early age. And so even that, remember going to <laughs> the malls and looking at mannequins and going, well, that's the standard. That's what I need to look like. And driving myself further and further in athletics to uh, try and get that image, that body image. And so um, I knew God loved me, but I fed myself with the lies and beliefs in my heart that it was the outside world that was important than um, how he saw me. So today, um, just knowing we're bombarded everywhere with your image and what and how we define that and um so just posing the questions who are we and what is our worth um and why am i so disappointed in myself um when i know god says something different so um uh, yeah, looking at our, our self-worth And our value and identity In all the wrong places And so um, I wanted to hit on three Three lies that we um, Tell ourselves And so um, the, Just quickly I wanted to go through them before um, But it's the The lie that we put our value In others um, The lie we have to look a certain way and then the lie that we must be in control. And so first, um, uh, by a show of hands, how many of you have been influenced by someone in your lifetime? Yeah, everybody, <laughs> me, yeah. So in that, how many of you can even pinpoint a certain time in your life where you really took the value of someone else uh, and believed that it was truth? I know I have. And so in that, in taking their perception as truth. And so why, why do you think we do that? Why do we put so much weight on other people's perception of us when, that's, when we should be looking to Christ in our image and letting them dictate um, how, how they view us? And so... Um, it could be several different things for you guys. It could be, hey, did, I wanted to fit in in the cool crowd. You, growing up in school, I wanted to be with the popular kids. Um, or I wanted to be a part of that um, extracurricular activity. Um, I wanted to please my parents and teachers. I wanted to make good grades and, and know that my, my intelligence um, would please those people. Maybe for me, it's sports uh, or dance or some kind of activity where you wanted people to say, hey, I'm athletic. Um, or maybe it's relationships and uh, having to have um, a guy to make us feel valuable and needed and wanted um, and that someone likes me and putting uh, our value in that. So what are those things that we've put our value in other than Jesus? Um, So again, our first point, um, the, the lie, the first lie we believe is our value is defined by others. So I thought this was interesting. I looked at, hey, what are some synonyms of value? And uh, a couple of them are worth, importance, significance. Um, and so I wanted to substitute those and say, uh, and read these lies again. Our worth is defined by others. Our importance is defined by others. Our significance is defined by others. And those are pretty weighted words that we're giving people reign to allow them to speak in on the basis of what they think of us, saying that our worth is dependent upon them or our importance or significance, and yet we allow them to distort and abuse that which has been secure in the image of God. Um, all too often I know I look back and see how quickly I was able to give up you know, long, long-term security in Christ for the acceptance of the here and now of of people. Um, And so, ladies, who are we letting define our value? I want to let that settle in. Who are we looking to to allow people to define our value? Um, An article in Forbes magazine said, um, when we place the power to define our worth in someone else's hands... We are often told that we only want to be wanted. Uh, This artificial script leaves us with an extremely narrow role to be a pleaser. So, ladies, again, I want to ask you guys, where are we letting uh, people define our value? Uh, I can remember also as a little girl (laughs) playing with Barbies. Who who in the room has played with Barbies? Everybody? (laughs) So I loved Barbies. I uh, would play house and envision, oh, one day I'll have um, a family with the husband and I'll be the mom and played with my friends. And uh, so I remember growing up and and loving Barbies. Uh, But one thing that stood out to me. at a young age looking at that is what did Barbie always have? She always had makeup on and she had crazy dimensions of features. And so I'm going, huh, that might give me a skewed view of what a woman should look like. Um, And so in researching that, I go, what would it look like if Barbie were a human today as a woman? What would be those features? So y'all get ready for this. Um, it said, while Barbie's head would be two inches larger than the average U.S. woman's, her waist would be 19 inches smaller and her hips would be 11 inches smaller. Since her waist would be four inches thinner than her head, Barbie's body wouldn't have the room it needs to hold all of its vital organs. (laughs) You wouldn't even be able to live. Um, And Her uber-skinny ankles and child-sized feet (laughs) would make it it necessary for her to walk on all fours. So she wouldn't even be able to walk. But yet, we look at this doll and go, that's what I want to look like when I get older. I want to be Barbie. Um, And so my second lie is the lie, we have to look a certain way. So I wanted to show you guys a quick video um, of the distortion of how we've um, looked at, at magazines and women and have made it um, our reality. Isn't that crazy to think that we compare ourselves to that? That And I know I do that all the time. Look at billboards and ads and models and go, hey, why don't I look like that when they They photoshopped her, and so many times <laughs> that 's what it is um, and so, I wanted to go into some some statistics for you guys that were pretty startling um, just with body image and and uh, women struggling with uh, weight and how we need to look and so these are students you, you, um, you guys ninety one percent of women surveyed on a college campus had attempted to control their weight through dieting, 91%. Anorexia is the third most common chronic illness among adolescents. 25% of college-aged women engage in binging and purging as weight management technique. The mortality rate associated with anorexia nervosa is 12 times higher than the death rate associated with all causes of death for females 15 to 24. The body type portrayed in advertising as the ideal is possessed naturally by only 5% of American females. 47% of girls, fifth through 12th grade, reported wanting to lose weight because of magazine pictures. 69% 69 of girl, 69% of girls in 5th to 12th grade reported that magazine pictures influenced their idea of a perfect body shape. This is where it gets crazy. 42% of first through third graders, first through third graders, want to be thinner. And 81% of 10-year-olds are afraid of being fat. Even elementary kids, going back to playing with Barbie, It is at a young age, and we are bombarded by all of the world and what they want our value in, and now we have to look a certain way, and these kids are wanting to distort their image of how God has created them and all that pressure of wanting to look a certain way. Um, Dr. Brown in Psychology Today stated, body shame is so powerful and often so deeply rooted in our psyches that it actually affects why and how we feel shame in many of the other categories, including sexuality, motherhood, parenting, health, aging, and a woman's ability to speak out with confidence. So looking back on our lives, where are we getting those fed to us? Through movies, commercials, billboards, magazine ads, and sadly enough, kids' toys that we play with. They are feeding us with the unrealistic expectation that we need to look a certain way to be noticed, valued, loved, or even popular with people. We have become obsessed with finding our value and image that we soon find ourselves gripping tightly in control. Um, We are wanting to control how we look, even under extreme circumstances. Um, This is a pretty interesting story. Uh, In Psychology Today, um, there's an article in Perfectionism in Women, and a woman on Good Morning America (laughs) accumulated over... $30,000 in debt so that she could look like Kim Kardashian. Yeah. (laughs) So people are going through crazy extreme measures trying to take control of situations and wanting to look a certain way. Um, In that same article, a coach says, many of the women I coach will at some point or another face the fact that they too have been pursuing perfection for most of their lives. Many of us think it's the key to our success, when in fact it's the very thing leading us away from our true purpose and completely wipes our energy out in the process. And so uh, our third point and our third lie is we must have control. And so another uh, quote, it said, women and girls have perfect perfect tossed in their faces frequently in both overt and subtle ways so what is that for us we strive I know I strive for control I try and grip that tightly I confess and my mom's in the back she can attest to this I was bossy and had an attitude wanting to manipulate situations and take control of them and doing what I wanted to do and tried to get other people to follow that. I didn't want to be the follower. I wanted to be um, the leader in that. And if someone didn't want to do what I wanted to do, then I was going to manipulate them into wanting to do what I wanted to do. And so um, in that, uh, I know I can't do things on my own. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I need to hold things loosely and be a steward of things, not an owner of things. And, um, but I know I can, I can have those lies come in going, I don't need anybody's help. I'm fully capable of doing anything and everything on my own. And if I don't know, I'll just find the way and, I'll, and I can get by. Um, so how how do we define success in our lives in that, whether it's through career or through school, if anybody's a student out there, or even being a mom or um, anything that we're going through in our life with relationships, friendships, all of that, uh, are we going to have that attitude of, I need to take control of this. I need to be perfect at this. If I'm not going to do it, then everything's going to fall apart. Or are we going to be able to hold it loosely? And so um, I would just allow us to search our hearts and see where those certain areas where we tend to group things tightly and we want to steer the course of, of our life in that and where are we seeking perfection. Um, so I have one more video and then we'll wrap up. I wanted to show that video at the at the end just to encompass everything of we look at others and we want what we don't have and uh, compare ourselves and so just looking back at those lies our values defined by others and wanting what other people have and we don't have or what they say about us we, we want to have to look a certain way um, just as those girls were in there I want straight hair, I want curly hair thinking that they need to look a certain way. And the last lie, we must have control. So in closing, um, how are we gonna choose to see ourselves? Are we going to keep wishing we had a different feature uh, that someone else has? Are we going to try and dress a certain way so we feel accepted? Are we going to live controlling everything around us, telling ourselves that we must strive for perfection We, including I, have fed into the lies so long that have settled nicely and built a home in our hearts and our minds. And it's time to identify what is keeping us from embracing God's truth and allowing it to transform our hearts and renew our minds into believing how we are beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made in his image. Before I close, I do want to ask ourselves these three questions Where are we putting our value and identity? Who are we comparing ourselves to? And who are we trying to impress? I'll say them one more time. Where are we putting our value and identity? Who are we comparing ourselves to? And who are we trying to impress? The last five to 10 minutes, I would love for you guys to really reflect on that in your own lives and just get with two to three people and just discuss those. Hey, where have I in my life put my value and identity other than Christ? Who am I comparing myself to and who am I trying to impress? So, I'll give you guys 5 to 10 minutes and then we'll come back. I'll come back up. Okay, I would just love for us to all come together real quick and um, hear you guys' feedback. So anything that you guys discussed um, in your groups that you would love to share uh, with everybody, I would love to hear that. So I want to open it up for everybody to speak. Love it. not Okay. I was just sharing with the group that my
3: earliest
1: memory of how we are supposed to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it was the Barbie dolls with smooth faces and rosy red cheeks. And my face was full of freckles. And I didn't think that was acceptable. So my mom tells us, Christmas morning, I would be exhausted. very disappointed because there was never a gift wrapped of a freckles remover kit. <laughs> and so she would tell me, honey, those are angel kisses. It's okay. Aww. But still somehow in the world, to me at seven, Freckles wasn't a cool thing. Mm -hmm. So that's my earliest memory of how to look a certain way. Thank you for sharing. God loved me with my freckles. Yes,
2: he did. I have freckles too.
1: Yes. I think one of the things that we talked about was... My head has gone completely blank. The scripture that talks about taking every thought captive Mm -hmm. and how, you know, I don't think men struggle as much as we do with having 50,000 thoughts in our mind at once and how quickly we can go places we never intended to go. And all of a sudden we've arrived and we don't know what to do with it. (laughs) And so we have to back up and think, okay, I'm pulling that one back out, you know. And, And I think for me, especially as a mom of grown children trying to find my position again, Um, i'm really struggling that's been a big big Mm -hmm. struggle for me is what do i do with the time that god's given me and how do i take control of that thought life to such a point that i can steward the time he has given me that's Mm -hmm. different than it's ever been before in such a way that god is so honored and blessed and glorified that we can continue to give him glory and Mm -hmm. you know i don't see that about myself and and that's a problem because God sees that about me. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, that was one thought we had. Thank you for
4: sharing. Yes, in the back. Um, we do CrossFit, and so like, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I struggle with like my weight as far as being skinny, but I definitely compare myself to like weightlifters and CrossFitters and how like they have really nice muscles and they, they look really good. Yeah. And I don't think it's a bad thing to strive to be healthy but i think if you're making it ultimate like anything in your life can be an idol and you can definitely easily make your body an idol and make yourself an idol so as long as you have jesus your foundation and he is where you find your identity then i mean you it's okay to want to be healthy but don't make that your ultimate thing in life
2: that's great (coughs) anybody else do you guys have any questions Well, ladies, thank you so much for letting uh, me share with you a part of my heart and my journey and um, just getting to share with you uh, just how the Lord has, has changed me in this and how it still is a continual struggle, but how we can combat the lies of the world and feed God's truth, that we are made in his image, and we're all so beautifully unique. And he did that um, on purpose, and it was a part of his design. And so you guys are beautiful and wonderful, and thank you so much for coming. Um, Great news. We have a 15-minute break. So if you guys want to keep chatting or um, about... The topic, or we have snacks on the third floor. So we have drinks and snacks, but yes, 10, 15 minutes and be back here. And then Katie Baumgratz will talk. Ellie, sorry, my apologies. Ellie will talk to you next. Thank
4: you guys. Well, my name is Ellie Troyer. I am a resident here at Watermark, just like all the other girls that you will be hearing from today. I am serving in external focus and specifically getting to work at Quest Care Clinic, the urgent care clinic that Watermark has partnered with. And so it's been such a sweet opportunity to be able to be down here in Dallas. And I'm from Oklahoma, so it's a little bit different of a culture, small-town Oklahoma, like a 1,000 people. So I'm figuring out how to be an aggressive driver instead of just... Nonchalantly going down the road and waving at people. But um, it's been such a sweet time to be down here, um, an incredible opportunity to be equipped and to learn and to have some community like um, I'd never had before. And so I'm so excited to be talking to you guys today. And um, like I said, my name is Ellie. And if at any point during um, this time that we have together, if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand, holler at me, and I would love to either try to answer your question or figure out how to get the answer to your question so um just like Janie said whenever we began with a biblical worldview there are four points so there's creation fall redemption and restoration And just as Janie so eloquently put it, how men and women were created, there's roles, but we're equal. um, And that was the creation part and how Natalie hit so well on the lies that we believe because of the fall, because of when sin entered into the world, things were not as they should have been when the Lord created us. And so we recognize that there's a disconnect where... Um, there are things that we believe that just aren't true. And so now I get to talk to you guys about the opportunity that we have to be redeemed from those lies, where sin is still going to be a part of our lives because we're human, because we're fallen, but because of what Jesus has done, we can be redeemed. And so. The definition of the word redemption from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Uh Uh-oh, I clicked too many. Oh, well, I'm just going to let Natalie run my slides because evidently I can't do it. (laughs) Um, So the definition of redemption, there were lots of definitions, you know, whenever you pull it up and it's like bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. So I picked out a couple of them. One of them said the act of making something better or more acceptable. Another one said the act of exchanging something for money or exchanging something for an award or anything like that. then there was actually a bullet point that said Christianity, the act of saving people from sin and evil, the fact of being saved from sin or evil. And so I just thought that was so interesting how this secular dictionary had a definition specifically for Christianity. Um, But still I was like, well, does that really fully explain what redemption means what redemption means for you and I in our lives where we're broken and we're hurt but Christ has given us new life and so I was thinking about different ways that we see redemption in our everyday lives and trying not to think of biblical um, examples and the first thought that came to my mind were coupons So you can like redeem coupons at the grocery store for whatever. If you're buying something online, you can get a coupon code. And um, so I grew up, my mom, every Sunday would sit at the kitchen table and she'd cut out coupons. And um, I was like, what are you doing? This takes so long. Wouldn't you rather like be playing or doing something else? You're just sitting at the table and cutting these out. And I didn't fully understand, but later on whenever I grew up I realized my mom saved a lot of money It saved a lot of money for our family by cutting out these coupons because they had value she would take them to the store and some of these stores would have like double coupon days and so whatever the value was it was like oh a dollar off a box of Lucky Charms and it's two dollars off a box of Lucky Charms and then you're only paying like a dollar and a half and you end up saving so much money and so just thinking about the ways that we see how there's an exchange or there's a value or making something better than it was before and Um, It was just so interesting, and so I was thinking about coupons, and, and I started talking about the Extreme Couponing show. Have you guys heard about that? Okay, let's watch a clip really quick about that. Okay, so we see that 's a little extreme, like the name says extreme couponing, and to redeem my mom a little bit, that wasn 't the way that I grew up we don 't have walls of toothpaste at home, and there 's not still diapers in our house, um, but she did save a lot of money, and so um, just recognizing those coupons have value, you can take those to a grocery store to any place where you can buy things, and you can say, "I have this coupon, and they 'll knock a percentage off they 'll knock a dollar amount off and you get your product for a lesser price and so you're getting something better or more acceptable in our own eyes and we also see that it's an individual item it's not usually like well there's sometimes it's everything in the store is 40% off but it's an individual store it's like you can get 50 cents off of these tomatoes or this box of cereal and so it's an individual exchange you can't take it to different stores but It's a one-time-use thing most of the time. Um, And then I've always just been like, that is so kind of these companies to just allow people, if they're willing to put in the work, to cut these coupons out and to use them on their products because they wouldn't have to do that. But it's just so generous, so kind of these companies to be willing to give us something because they know that their product is worth it. And so... I'm thinking about redemption. I'm thinking about the way that we use coupons. And then I'm like, well, then how does that apply to the way that we've been redeemed from the fall and from our brokenness? And I realized, well, there's nothing that we can do to earn our own value. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. And our hearts aren't always kind. But we recognize that because of Christ, he has given us value. We were made in his image. He gave us this exchange of his life for ours and he loves us he's kind and because of this kindness then we can go back in this circular thing and see well because he's kind we have value and he and he gave us life and he's kind and so it just keeps going around and around in a circle and so I would just love to talk to all of you today about how women and men, this applies to both, but how we can be reminded that we have value, that we can have an individual relationship with Christ, and that Jesus is kind to us. And so I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture, so bear with me. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Joshua chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, or if you don't have it on your phone, just kind of sit back, soak it in, I apologize I'm going to be reading these big chunks of scripture, but I think that it's necessary to get the full picture of what I'm going to be talking about today. So Joshua chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and start reading this. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. "'Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them.' But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them and on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, "'I know that the Lord has given you the land.' He is God in the heavens and above on all the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we have come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on his own head." His blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So this is a, a huge passage of scripture where we see lots and lots of things going on. We At the very beginning, Um, we recognize that Joshua has sent spies into Jericho. You all know and the walls came tumbling down. But this is the beginning. This is pre and the walls came tumbling down. And so the spies go into Jericho. They're trying to figure out the tactics. What are the best ways that we can come in and defeat this land? Um, The Lord, we know the Lord's going to give it to us, but doing our due diligence, how can we best prepare? And so the spies are in the land. They're trying to figure out. They come to the house of Rahab, and she's like, y'all are not safe. So she takes them upstairs. She hides them underneath these stalks of flasks that she has on her roof, and she's like, wait here. It's going to be okay. And she was right in doing so. And so um, the king sends authorities to Rahab's house. And they're like, hey, these men are here. Have you seen them? Where did they go? And she's like, well, they, they were here, but they've gone. So you might should go that way, I think. you like Get out of the city and just chase them. And they're like, okay. So they leave. So we recognize here, like, a lot has happened. <laughs> so much has happened. But there are a few key points that we all probably are like, Okay, well, let's go back to that. So Rahab was a prostitute. And in that day and in our day, there's this stigma associated with that vocation that would probably lessen the value of that person. And so... Um, we see that the spies have gone to this house but they're just trusting her that she's told them that she'll keep them safe but it's like well this woman's not exactly like working at a church down the road and so like hopefully things are going to be okay but she she does exactly what she says she would do and she saved them and We know that even though she was a prostitute, even though she had made choices that for the world's eyes lessened her value, we know that Christ died for her just as much as he's died for us. And so regardless of choices that we've made in our lives where we feel like our value is diminished or where other people are like, well, I don't know if you're as godly as we think you first were, it doesn't matter because we're human and we're going to make mistakes. But regardless of all of that, Christ has died to pay the price for our mistakes, and he's given us value. We have this innate dignity because of his sacrifice for us. And so we see that, just like Janie had mentioned earlier, we are made in the image of God from Genesis 1.26. And Rahab wasn't... She wasn't saved because, at that point, she turned her life around and things were perfect. And on the outside, everything was great. And she went to church five times a week. And you can, you go to, yeah, you can go to church five times a week here. But um, you, she wasn't praying more. She wasn't doing all of these things to try to earn her salvation. But if you remember back to the scripture, she said, "I know who your God is. I have heard about Him." The hearts of our people melted because we know that you serve the one true God. And so Rahab wasn't saved because of what she did, what she didn't do, or how she turned her life around. She was saved because she believed in the Lord, in what Christ was going to do. She knew that he was the true God. And even though Christ had not come yet, her faith is what made her righteous. And Christ has given her value. And we are given value because we are made made righteous because of what Christ has done for us. And so we see that um, in chapter six of Joshua it continues talking about um, Rahab and it says in the city that And the city and all that was within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So down to verse 22, it says, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and the mother and brothers and all who belonged to her and they brought All her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron. They put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua (laughs) saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so we see Rahab was faithful. Rahab did what she knew she needed to do. Regardless of the choices she made with her lifestyle, regardless of her lying, she was faithful to save the men of God. And because of that commitment to the one true God, her family was then spared. And so we we hear about this faith, and it's like, okay, I get it. Like, whatever, Rahab was faithful. But if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, Rahab is in the hall of faith. This is where the big dogs are, y'all, like Moses, Abraham. like These are the ones that we hear about on a regular basis who live their lives in a way that was glorifying to the Lord, and Rahab's in here, and it says, By faith the, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so we see that her faith is what saved her because of Christ's death, but Christ's death also gave her value. And so that's just one thing that I want you to remember from today is that we have value because of the gift that Christ has given us. And so moving on, if you guys would turn to Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, there's a little section about two women named Mary and Martha. And so these verses say, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And so I'm going to be honest, y'all. I identify with Martha. I, I'm Martha, is anybody else? yes, Martha's, okay, (laughs) I'm not alone, and so I am the one, if anything's going on, I want to make sure that everything in the house is ready, I want to be getting food ready, is everybody taken care of, like, how how hospitable can I be so that I can host you well and make you feel welcomed, and that things are in order, and that we eat dinner on time, and that it's not burned, and so whenever I see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, I'm like, come on, girl, like, we got things to do, and so I totally identify with this passage, and um stepping back and not demeaning martha it's evident that they were both given different gifts and martha's gifts was included hospitality it included serving and she was wanting to use those gifts well and mary's gifts just was um, Mary's gifts included sitting at Jesus' feet and listening and be able to take that in and apply it. And I'm sure that she was able to then go out and share with other people. But we recognize here how different Mary and Martha are. One is a go-getter. One is like, let's just take it easy and um, see how things go. But in all of this, um, moving on to John chapter 11... Even though we see these differences in their personalities and in their giftings, we recognize a similar response. And so I'm sure that you guys have heard about Lazarus. If not, you're about to. And so John chapter 11 So again, we're seeing that Mary had anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped it up with her hair. And how um, Martha was also there remembering how she had been using her gifts to serve. And they sent for Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, please come. We know that you can heal him. We know that you can heal him. But he's about to die and we need you. And Jesus responds with, hey, this, this doesn't lead to death. Like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be for the glory of the Lord. And so Mary and Martha are probably like, whatever that means. I don't know, but please hurry. So moving on to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stayed two days longer in the place that he was. He didn't immediately go. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha and the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you if you believed and you would see the glory of God? So we see this whole story of how Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, how he had told Martha what was going to happen. He told the disciples what was going to happen. But Mary and Martha were still saying, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds to Martha saying, hey, you know who I am. You know that I'm going to raise him from the dead. I need you to just trust me. And she says, I know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we recognize that there's an acknowledgement that Martha and Mary both know that Jesus is God, that he is Christ, that he's going to save them from their sins. And um, we we don't know that Mary and Martha were married. It It seems logical that Lazarus was probably supporting both of them because of their... Immense grief over his death. Obviously, there's going to be a great loss if a sibling or a brother dies, but there is that much weight added onto it if he was their provider. So they're saying, Lord, if if you had been here, then our support and our protection and our provision would not be gone now. But Jesus continues to say, Trust me and believe in who I am, and I'm going to raise him from the dead. And so we see that. Mary and Martha came to him separately. They have different gifts. They're very different, but they both believed in who Jesus was. And because of that individual belief that he was the Christ and that he could save them, they both were saved individually, not because of a man, not because of their brother, not because of certain qualities that they possessed or personalities that they had, but because of their individual belief in who Christ was, they were saved And so they were able to have that individual relationship. It says, and Jesus loved Mary, and Jesus loved Martha, and he loved them both individually. And so in this individuality, we see that there's also kindness. And so if you will now turn to John 4, there's a story um, that's honestly one of my favorites, from scripture it's about the woman at the well or the woman of samaria and to give you some context samaria was made up of basically mixed a mixed breed where it's half jew half gentiles um, so the gentiles don't like him the jews don't like him Nobody really talks to them, especially a man talking to a woman. It's just like, hey, you, if you have to go through Samaria, you kind of put your head down and you just like get through as fast as you can so there doesn't have to be any interaction. And so that's kind of setting the stage for the beginning of this passage So we recognize that the sixth hour is um, mid-morning around noon. It's not a normal time that you're going to be going to get water from the well. So verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water and immediately we recognize there's there's going to be some sort of interaction either there's going to be complete like ignorance of the situation that's going on or there's going to be hostility but this woman is alone and Jesus is alone and they're both at this well and so verse 7 again a woman from samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her give me a drink Jesus initiates with this woman this woman that would not necessarily have been given any value by anybody of that day, by Gentile or by Jew. This woman who wasn't supposed to be talking to a man one-on-one, this woman who's probably got some issues at home if she's going to the well by herself, and Jesus initiates with her and says, give me a drink. Verse 9 says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so this woman's getting a little sassy with Jesus, which is probably understandable. I'd be like, okay, you're not supposed to talk to me. Now you're initiating, so what is going on? But Jesus initiates with her, and she gets a little sassy. But Jesus, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't get frustrated with her. He just gently says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus right here starts revealing himself to her, using this analogy of living water, and she is obviously not really understanding it yet because she's a Samaritan and hasn't had all the training that the Jews have had, but she keeps interacting with him, and Jesus is just continuing to be kind. And The woman said to him, Sir... You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And so um, she's getting a little sassy again, but Jesus patiently and calmly replies, and he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so we see that... She's still not really understanding. It's like, hey, I'm having to come get this water on my own. It's hot. Like, the well is deep, and it's heavy, and I'm spilling it, and then I'm frustrated, and why can't you just give me this living water so I never have to draw water again? I won't thirst. I can take it back home. Everybody will be happy. You can quit interacting with me, and I can be on my merry way, and Jesus keeps saying, hey, I am the living water. I am what you need, and so she begins to start asking more questions about this living water, and She's like, I don't get it, but I'm just going to keep interacting. And um, we see that in, in this next passage. Let's get started here. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so now things are kind of getting flipped on her. She, she truthfully says, hey, I don't have a husband, Jesus. But Jesus is like, I know. <laughs> You've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. And so he, he commends her for telling the truth. But he's also like, hey, I know more than you think that I know. And she begins to realize that Jesus is not normal. And so she said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so we see here, the woman is trying to get Jesus sidetracked. It's like, oh, I've been called out, so let's change the subject. And um, he he doesn't um, get sidetracked. He doesn't try to argue with her on this little controversial debate of the time about worshiping in Jerusalem or on the Mount or whatever. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me when The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things." And Jesus said to her, I am, I who speak to you am he. And so we see that she, she's trying to get him distracted, but he keeps him on course, and then he's just like, here I am, like I've been trying to reveal myself to you, like slowly but surely, but I am the Messiah that you have heard about. You may not have had all the teaching that the Jews have had, and you may have been looked down upon, but... I am going to show you I am the Messiah that is to come, and I'm here. And so the disciples come back, and there's more interactions, and um, they're like, why are you talking to this woman, Jesus? Like, she's a Samaritan, and she's a woman, and she's by herself. What's going on? And um, Jesus had already revealed himself to the woman, and In verse 28, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Then they went out of the town and were coming to him. And so we see here that in the woman's excitement of who she knew that Jesus was, she leaves her water jug at the well. The very thing that she had intended to go and do, this task that she had planned out to do, she leaves it at the well, and she runs into the town to tell everybody she sees that she has met Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And we recognize that this, inner, this whole entire passage probably would not have happened if Jesus had not been kind to her. And so we see that this kindness fueled the way that he talked to her. It fueled the way that he loved her, and he didn't get frustrated, and he wasn't upset whenever she got sassy, and he slowly but surely revealed himself to her so that it wasn't like, hey, will you give me a drink? Also, I'm Christ. It wasn't this abrupt transition, but he kindly and gently led her to who he was. And so to wrap up, we see that this idea of redemption um, it can sometimes be hard to grasp because it's this word that we kind of know what it means, but it doesn't always completely make sense of like, I'm redeemed, but I don't exactly know what that means. And so looking back at those definitions, we see that things are to be made better or more acceptable when they're redeemed. There, There's an exchange whenever something is re- redeemed. And even the Christianity, uh, the Christianity, Definition said that you're saved from evil or saved from sin, but we see that Jesus paid the price. So the price exchange, the pr- the value in redemption, Jesus paid that and offered us redemption. And so He made us valuable. He made us acceptable. Where with Rahab, where she not would not have been considered valuable. He gives her value, and he gives us value, regardless of decisions that we've made or things that we've done. We see that he exchanged his life for ours. where um, if I'm at the grocery store and I'm getting um, some groceries and I have coupons, I'm exchanging my coupon for something else, and we see how Jesus exchanged his life for ours, giving us eternal life. There There was redemption in this exchange, and we see that he has saved us from death, He has paid for our sin, and he offers us eternal life because of his kindness. And so he has bought us back. He's won us back. He's atoned for us. He's offset the bad effect, and he's made us worthwhile. And so throughout this whole talk, y'all, if there's anything you take away, and this applies to us specifically, but it also applies to believers, to men, to anybody else that you're going to come in contact with, that we are given value because of the price that christ paid for us he exchanged his life for us so that we can have individual relationships with him and because of all of this and the reason why he did all of that is because he loves us and he's kind and so just um as you guys are leaving here today I would really encourage you to look at Ephesians 1 7 through 14 just some powerful verses about what redemption looks like and what it then means for us as we continue to live our lives for Christ and so thank you guys so much for being here Katie's going to come up and round out the day and if you have any questions again um, feel free to holler at me um, and we'll be hanging around after the session so thank you guys for coming.
1: All
3: right. Hello, everyone. So I'm going to be um, finishing our time today, and I'm going to be talking about restoration. How can I be an image bearer of Christ? So we've seen how uh, God initially intended uh, men and women through creation, what the fall has done, how he's redeemed us, and now what do we do with this? How can we restore our image in Christ? So I'm going to give us some real practical applications. Um, and first I want to give you the definition of the word restoration. It says, The process of repairing or renovating a building, work of art, vehicle, so as to restore it to its original condition. And so um, just the meaning of that word of restoring something, that it's a process, and it's going to take time. It's not a quick fix that we one day wake up being redeemed in Christ, and that we are a new creation, but that it is a process, um, and the goal is to restore it to its original condition, and so this is going to—what I take us through is the hope that we can restore that image, even in the midst of a broken, um, sinful world. So, I want to show us some images of just some examples of restoration. The first one is just a couch and just seeing how tainted and broken that was before, but through the work of a very creative person was able to restore that couch and make it something beautiful um, and able to sit on. And the next one is just a vehicle, old worn down car that someone gave it a new paint job and um, fixed it up so that it could be beautiful and restored. The next one's just a, a shed or a barn. But what I think is neat about this is it looks like a brand new place. It didn't just get a different color blue. Um, it's brand new. Put a heart on there. Make it cute and fixed up. Uh, restoring what was once ugly and um, torn and making it beautiful. And so the last one is just an image of a woman. And just um, an old photo that, with new technology and um, imaging that it's something new. Um, and beautiful. And so that is just my hope and prayer for us that we can be restored women um, that were created in the image of God and we can live our lives in a way that the world sees that and knows that there's something special um, and different about us and how we were initially intended um, to be created. So I'm going to give you an acronym and with the word image. And so each letter will hopefully give you a memory tool to remember these um, applications for um, you type A's, I think. I'm type B, so I even get the types. But it's not going to be like starting with the letters, so just bear with me of how I incorporated um, the letters. So the first one is I. Uh, know your identity in Christ. And if we want to live that out, we're going to have to know what that is. And how do we know that? It's by studying God's word, taking time to really read those truths, read who we are and who God is, the creator um, who created us, and knowing about him, informing and transforming our hearts, taking these lies that the world tells us and replacing them with truths, um, renewing our mind, as he says in Romans 12. Uh, This looks a lot like having a quiet time each morning. I know we hear that buzzword, quiet time, all (laughs) a lot, but really just time each day to spend with the Lord, reading his word, journaling about it, um, just really having that time um, with the Lord. And what really kind of transformed my mind around this quiet time is that this is time that the Lord desires with us. It's not just I need this to get throughout my day. He wakes up and thinking of it's like, hey, Katie, come sit at the coffee table. I want things. There are things in my uh, word that I want to show you. I don't need you for today. I'm God's sovereign on his own, but he desires that time to be with us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're struggling with, and so he desires that time with us. So waking up and knowing, hey, God wants this time with me, it's not just something I need to do. He desires that. Um, scripture memory is a really good way just to write God's truth on our hearts. And so um, just some tools for that. Scripture Typer is an app um, that I use that really helps. I used to have colorful note cards, which was great because I like bright colors. But this app is really helpful in uh, memorizing scripture and taking time. You can get uh, notifications for review, um, group them in certain, in certain types of scripture and so that scripture typer, and if you have more questions about that, um, I can talk to you about it at the end. Being discipled and discipling others so having older women pouring into our lives who have been walking a long time with the Lord. Um, Melissa Miller, someone who's discipled me for the past three years. Her mom's actually here, which is so cool. Um, and so she's just been a woman of God that's just faithfully walked with the Lord. She knows God's word. Uh, so she pours into me. I meet with her monthly and just talk about where I'm at and um, how I can be more of the woman God created me. And then in that, discipling others, taking what we're learning about through God's word and teaching it. The best way to remember something is to teach it. And so I'm a small group leader. I have small group girls. I've been doing resident for high school ministry. I don't know if I mentioned that at the beginning. Probably not. Uh, But so discipling the younger generation, building them up and teaching them what we're learning um, has helped me so much just with my own walk of being able to share that and living my life out as an example for them. And so just um, a verse, and uh, Ellie mentioned it too in Ephesians 1, of just about more about our identity. Uh, verse 4 and 5 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So just in those two verses alone, in the whole scope of the Bible, we see here that we are loved, that we are chosen, that we are holy and without fault, adopted, pursued, wanted, and pleasing. And so just those two verses and that truth alone, meditating on that and allowing that to inform and renew our mind of what this world is feeding us and telling us that we should be or look like, those are truths worth building your foundation on and waking up each morning and allowing that um, to just penetrate our hearts and um, restore our image in Christ. And so my next point is the letter M, which is going to stand for believing you are a masterpiece created with a purpose. And so I take this mainly from one of my favorite verses in the Bible, which is Ephesians 2.10, and this is the New Living Translation, so it uses the word masterpiece. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So there's really two parts of that that I want to break down. And the first is that he calls us his masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. And the definition of the actual word is a work of outstanding artistry, skill or workmanship an artist or craftsman's best piece of work so to think of that the god the creator of the universe the heavens the lands the most beautiful mountainside we've ever seen the ocean tide whatever that looks like grand canyon he considers us his masterpiece his best piece of work and Janie touched on that we, as women, are the pinnacle of God's creation. His final touch on everything that he said was good, and He then he made a woman to just complete it and finish it. And so, to think of that, that we are God's masterpiece, um, and just taking that a step further, and this is something that um, just really, uh, just was a, I don't know what the word is, but um, to think that, every single person in this world is created so uniquely and differently. No one in this world that ever has lived or will, will, will live looks like us, thinks like us, has our exact eyes, our nose, our mouth, like just the physical features of us, but also the personalities that nobody likes the same things that I will or do the same things or have the same story of how I came to know the Lord and what Um, that means for me, that everyone is so uniquely different with their own stories. That in itself is just a masterpiece and just the vastness and sovereignty of our God. Um, In Psalm 139, we see that he knit us together in our mother's womb, that he hemmed us in. He wrote uh, pages in our books of how our life was going to go. And so uh, that verse is true, that we are a masterpiece. And the second part of that is just our purpose where God says that so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So he has purposes for us. We're not just here by mistake or for some agenda, that there is distinct purposes that he's created for us in the way he's uniquely wired us to carry out those purposes for him and for his glory. And so... um, So believing you are a masterpiece created with a purpose is important to restoring our image and kind of tied along with that purpose factor of how to best discover those is the next letter, which is A, accept the story God's writing for our lives. I think this is so important as women um, for multiple reasons, but I broke it down to kind of three ways we can accept Uh, the story he's writing, and it's first accepting where we are right now, that in our jobs, in our communities, in our families, our neighborhood, wherever we're at right now is is God's purpose and intention for us, and it might be a place that we don't want to be, that we're trying and want to be somewhere else, but he has value and purpose in where we're at right now. I love Um, These words in John chapter 17, some of Jesus' last words before he goes to be with with his father, Um, he's praying out to him. He says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. So the first part of that, just saying, I brought glory here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I find it fascinating that Jesus didn't come and and just save everyone. I'm like, Jesus, you were here. What about this city and those people and and that you know... um that and he's just no I had a specific plan here and a purpose that the father sent me to do and so we are now here to carry that out in our specific purposes here on this earth and so that we stand there at the end of our lives saying bring me into the glory if we've trusted in Christ and the gospel and we know we're spending eternity in heaven we can say that thing same thing uh, when we arrive and see our father in heaven so accepting where we are at right now And then accepting where we've been. And this is a hard one. Um, I have a very colorful past before I came to know the Lord. Tried to find my significance and worth in so many other outlets. um, And just got very much disappointed in every single one of um, those strivings to find my identity in. And so accepting that... Those are the choices I made, and those are the mistakes I made, and those are my mess-ups, and still some sin struggles, not that that I'm confined to, but that, you know, when in my flesh and my temptations, I want to look for men, or look to men for my identity, or I want to look to food to come for me in those moments. But knowing that, hey, even those things, God can use. He can use our past stories. He can use our mistakes and mess-ups. Um, One, to just help others who are going through those same situations. Other girls that are trying to find identity in men and relationships or or whatever that looks like um, in our performance, things that we can do. And so just using those past struggles um, to help us um, just come to know the Lord more and draw us closer to him as he heals and redeems that and then uses our story um, to share with others. And then accept where we're going. And so, what this really ties into is just unmet longings of places we want to be. I want to be at that moment. Um, I want a better job. I want you know better friends or better, better husband or I want a husband or I want children that are more well behaved. Whatever that looks like, um, unmet longings can hinder where God has us right now and accepting the story that He's writing for our lives. And um, but I love that. Um, our desires, the good desires that we have, can draw us closer to the Lord. And so we see this, or I love seeing this most, in Hannah in First Samuel chapter 1. As her desires for a child, she continues to go to the Lord and just pouring out her heart. Um, in verse 10, it says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. So this was a desire that she wanted a child, and instead of just taking that and trying to control it on her own, she was going to the Lord. She was laying that desire at his feet and praying that he um, would would answer her prayer, and he did in this instance, but I know there are many prayers that we've continuously prayed for that have just not come about, that the Lord hasn't answered, and we have to trust that um, that he is good, that he's still a good father, that he has plans for, that even though the prayers that we've prayed for have not been answered, that he does hear them. Um, and so accepting that where we're going, trusting our future to the hands of a loving father. So just some verses to really um, bring to light that he does have plans for us. Um, and you can write these down. I don't think I put them up. But Psalm 37, says, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. And so I've been really meditating on this lately in the, uh, with residency program coming to an end in May and just trusting that the Lord's going to direct my steps for where he has after this. I don't know. But trusting him with that and that he delights in every detail. So every moment is just not by mistake, that every detail has a purpose and a plan. And he wants to make himself known day after day of, hey, I'm with you and I love you. Don't worry about what's ahead. Today is enough trouble on its own. And so trusting uh, that verse. And then also Proverbs 16.3 says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. And then Psalm thirty-three, eleven. but the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. So just great truths to remember as we um, accept the story God's writing for our lives. And then moving on to uh, the G in the word image, and this is four Gs, so bonus here, maybe kind of cheesy, but using your gifts for God's glory and the gospel, so I'm going to spend most of this point um, at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So, if you have your Bibles, I'll kind of be jumping around throughout that throughout um, that chapter. And there's really three questions that I want to ask um, about using our gifts, and the first one is: Are we using our gifts within a body? So, in this chapter. Um, Paul is comparing the physical body with the body of Christ. And so in verse 12, it says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And then down in verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So my question is, are we using our gifts within a body? Are we in community? Are we running with other women who are believers and want the same things uh, for their identity, who are trying to, you know, figure out this Christian life and with all these struggles and temptations and um, just hardships? Uh, We need each other. It says in verse uh, 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And so having other um, people around us that can point us to these truths and remind us of, hey, if you suffer, I'm with you in that. Like, Let's talk about that. Let's see what Scripture says about that. Um, In verse 21, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So just saying that we can't claim that we don't need people. We can't be in isolation. We do need each other to help point us back to Christ in those moments where we want to turn away. This can also look like church membership, being a part of a church, being plugged in, serving in that church, using your gifts to serve that body, um, whatever that looks like. And so then the next question is, do you know your specific gifts to use? And uh, that same chapter, verses 4 through 7, says there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. So do you know your specific gifts? In the residency program, we've been taking some personality tests or some emotional intelligence, just kind of understanding more of how we're wired. And so it's been neat. Um, to take these tests and then just see, you know, a lot of them are like, oh, yeah, I knew that about me, but others, I'm like, I would have had no idea. And basically, they're just a list of questions, sometimes longer than others, um, and they just kind of, the strength finder, so you can write these down if you're curious, it's called strength finder uh, test, and basically, you just, yeah, you answer a bunch of questions, it kind of generates based on, like, 24 different giftings where you might fall in that. Um, And then the second one is the standout a standout test, and that kind of gives uh, more narrowed-in um, choices, but if you're curious about those. And again, these aren't like, uh, you know, biblically-based tests, but just to kind of see personalities, how we're wired, things like that have been cool. And then the last part, are we using our gifts for God's glory in the gospel? So ultimately, that is why the Lord has entrusted us with these gifts and given these to us, to build up his body, to encourage one another, yes, but to bring him glory and to share the gospel with others. And so this verse that I kind of want to end this point on um, is in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. It says, For what is our hope? our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed you are our glory and joy. And so what he's saying here, what Paul's saying here is that when we get up to heaven, it's not our works or what we've done, it's the people that we've pointed to Christ, those that we've the Lord has chosen to make known, make himself known through us that those people will be our hope and our joy and our crown in which we glory. And so just putting that into perspective, um, one takes my selfishness out of the picture of that's what's most important is loving people and making Christ known to them. Um, again, he doesn't need us, but he wants to use us. That shouldn't be a burden or a pressure we feel that, okay, how many people are going to be up in heaven that, I, that the gospel is made known through me? Um, the Lord knows that, and he has uh, that laid out, but he wants to use us. Um, so are we using our gifts within a body? Do you know your specific gifts to use? And are we using our gifts for God's glory and the gospel? So kind of talking about the end of our lives and standing before Christ if we've trusted in him for the forgiveness forgiveness of our sins leads me to my last and final point. And that is the E, keeping an eternal perspective. Uh, We are on this earth for a short and momentary time. Uh, We are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes, is in um, the book of James. And so... First, that kind of settling our, you know, our, our um, for me, like the control of, okay, I've got to get everything right, or I have such a big responsibility here. Well, yes, we are entrusted with the gospel and sharing that, but our lives are just brief and momentary. Um, and so I think this perspective is uh, most, uh, can be, sorry, most an example of Christ is during hardships and suffering when it just seems um, like life's just not going our way, when we hear of these stories of sickness and sadness and, and babies dying. And um, just recently, we've just had a lot of heartache just here on staff of Watermark of um, just really sad situations where you just think, where were you in that, God? How did you allow that to happen? Um, and so I, th- I know that having this eternal perspective Um, and trusting that suffering brings us closest to the Lord and that he even has purpose in that um, is what the world looks at and says, how do you find hope and joy in the midst of that? Um, And so I have a few verses, and I'll just read the first one, but Romans 3, just talking about the purpose of suffering. says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So just seeing that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Um, And in the moment, it doesn't feel like that. When you're suffering or mourning the loss, it, it doesn't feel like that. Or if you've been waiting a long time for the Lord to answer a prayer, it doesn't feel like that. But... And then in James saying, consider it joy in those moments. Um, And so what I really want to end on is just an example um, of a friend of mine. Um, She's in her 20s. She's my age. And um, she's been serving with student ministries for a few years and then recently got on staff here at Watermark. And she was just sitting at her desk and she realized that um, her cancer had come back. So she had gone through chemo treatment, um, was free of it, and then realized it was back. And so right now she's currently going through treatment again for the second time. Um, She has Hodgkin's lymphoma, so I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, But basically, right now they're killing her immune system completely and then doing a stem cell transplant to put those cells back in. and then basically installing a brand new system, and then for the next 100 days trying to reboot that system, and hopefully in an environment where Hodgkin's lymphoma won't um, grow. And so she sent us an email just kind of explaining all this, and she just sounds so positive, and I'm excited to be back with you all. You know, there's just 100 days, and and I'm just like, how do you have that hope and joy? And then I remember, okay, this is Holly Timms, who has walked faithfully with the Lord for a long time and she's prepared for this. She knows that this is short and this is momentary. Um, and at the end of her email, this is what got me the most. This is her long-term prayer request is that God would use this time in our story to bring others to know Jesus. The people we interact with at the cancer center and hospital, and specifically my parents and my brother. And then she ends it with this verse, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 And so this is a woman who knows her identity is in Christ. It's not in cancer. It's not in what this world tells her that she needs to be or become, or those lies that we touched on earlier. She knows her identity is rooted in Christ, and she's prepared for this time because she studies God's word. She knows what it says, that he loves her with an everlasting love, and that he will be with her through all of this. She knows that she's a masterpiece, even finding cancer, even being bald for the second time she finally it was so cute. She'd been monitoring how her hair's been growing back and having to get it cut in different ways, just having short hair and so um, but that that didn't shake her. I mean yes it shake her and she's hard, but Um, she just talked about, I'm sporting a new look now, and sent us a picture of her, um, in her beanie, but she knows she's a masterpiece, even fighting cancer, and that God has purpose for it, she's accepted that this is her story, that this is what her life's gonna be like, as her husband Blake has as well, and is walking through this with her so faithfully, um, She's using her joy and positive spirit, their, her gifts, to share the gospel with the, her hospital staff and her family. That she's praying that through this, that her parents and her brother would come to know the Lord, because she knows that that's what's most important. And so in that, she's keeping an eternal perspective. She knows that this is, again, short and momentary um, as this is just her short time here on earth, but using what God's given her in her circumstances to bear the image of Christ, even in the midst of hardships and suffering. So I want to end with a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that's really tying in Holly's story and just um, keeping that eternal perspective. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so in order to restore our image in, in Christ, that it's, it's going to take in those hard times remembering of what's ahead. That's what we're going to. Um, you know. So that is the biblical worldview. Where are we heading? Where are we going? And if we have trusted in Christ and trust that his gospel is true, that's what we have to look forward to. Um, so I just want to pray for us, and then I'll close out our time. Heavenly Father, um, just thank you for this sweet time to be reminded of who we are in you, Lord, what you initially intended for us and how the fall and sin has tainted that image, but that you have redeemed us, that you had a plan and a purpose from the start to redeem us um, in the image of you when you sent your son to die for us, to die on the cross for all the sins of the world so that we could spend eternity with you in heaven, Lord, And so then now we're living in this restoration period of how do we live, even though sins in the world, how do we still bear the image of you, Father? So I thank you with the truths of your word that you've left us with that show us how to do that and remind us that this isn't it, that this is just a momentary fleeting time here on earth. So I pray that we um, hold those eternal truths in our hearts, Lord, as we learn who we are in you and how we are a masterpiece, Lord, as we discover the gifts you've uniquely given to each person, Lord, um, as we discover those and as we um, just uh, put those into practice, I pray that you remind us that you love us and it's not what about we can do for you, but it's who we are in you, Lord. So just keep that Um, with us, Lord. uh, Make known to us different parts of this day that you want to speak sweetly and personally to us, and I pray that as we go out, we would just be more equipped um, with your word and with your truths of how to respond to a world that just uh, specifically has tried to damage the image of women, Lord, but we know who we are in you, and we want to discover more of it. So we love you. We thank you for this sweet time um, here today. And I just pray that you use it all for your glory and the furthering of your truth. In Christ's name.